Hey there, grace and peace to you. I am Captain Roger McCord of the Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army, and I am perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, we have been working our way through the book of Acts, but we like to take a break about once a month to examine something else, and today is one of those days. But first, I'd like to tell you a little story I heard from a guy who once came out of his office, which was in a deserted part of town, and managed to reach the street just in time to flag down a passing cab. And as he got in, the cabbie said, Wow, that was perfect timing, sir. You're just like Frank. Who's that? The passenger asked. Oh, Frank Feldman. He's a guy who did everything right all the time. The passenger laughed and said, ah, Everyone makes mistakes sometimes. But the cabbie shook his head and replied, Oh, not Frank. He was amazing. He was so good at tennis, he could have won the Grand Slam. He was so good at golf, he could beat any of the pros on a good day. He sang opera in a way that would have put any of the three tenors to shame, and he danced like a Broadway star. Oh, and you should have heard him play the piano. Wow, said the passenger. Sounds like he was something really special. Oh, you haven't heard the half of it, the cabbie crowed at his rider. Frank had a memory like a computer. He remembered everyone's birthday and every anniversary of every kind. He knew food, too. What was the best kind to order on any menu and which fork to use to eat it when it came. And he could fix anything. Not like me. I once tried to change a light bulb and managed to black out our whole street. But Frank, he could use a pack of gum and a shoestring to rewire a transformer just like MacGyver and faster, too. Wow, what a guy, the passenger said, sounding honestly impressed at Frank Feldman's obvious superiority. But the cabbie still wasn't done. Oh, Frank, he knew the city better than anyone, too. He always found the quickest way to go in traffic. He never ended up in a jam. Not like me. I always seem to get stuck in him. But old Frank, not at all. And besides that, he never made a mistake. And he really knew how to treat a woman so that she would feel good just from being near him. Even if she was in the wrong, he wouldn't argue or answer her back at all. And he was a great dresser, who always had a perfect shine on his shoes, too. In fact, he was such a perfect man, no one could ever measure up to Frank Feldman. Wow, that sounds downright awe-inspiring, said the passenger as they reached their destination. How did you happen to meet a guy like Frank? Oh, I never did meet Frank, said the cabbie. He died... But I married his wife, and she tells me all about him. Uh, now, flip with me to 2 Samuel, where we are going to go almost all the way to the end. This is 2 Samuel, chapter 22. I'm reading today from the New Living Translation, the 2nd edition. So if you're using a different version, you might find the words are different, but the meaning behind them should still be the same. We're going to start right at verse 1. 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. David sang this song to the Lord on the day that the Lord rescued him from all of his enemies and from Saul. He sang, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. He is my refuge, my savior, the one who saves me from violence. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. I uh, occasionally mention that I write material on the Daily Bible Fact page on Facebook. I'm just wrapping up this month-long series uh, there, looking at the life of King David as portrayed in the book of Samuel. 
or in our Bibles, the books of first and second Samuel and the original Hebrew scriptures. Those were just one book, but we, we split them up because they're, you know, they're long. The uh, ancient books of uh, Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, they're all related in that they tell the same story, but they're separate in that they tell it with a very different emphasis. Now, Samuel and Kings, they're both very much about the importance, but also the failings of the line of earthly kings. The stories were collected together and edited into more or less their current form while the people of God were in exile in Babylon. Now, those stories, stirring as they are in parts, they explain that the people, including their human kings, never really followed the ways of God the way that they had promised to. The exile was a result of their, their frequent turning away from God when they should have been listening to and following him. Right? And the story of David, who was and is widely acknowledged as the greatest of these human kings, the one whose heart was most attuned to the things of God, it's a story that should leave us all deeply grateful that God didn't simply walk away from us all right then and there. Because like most of us, David was a mess. Now, Chronicles is more about holiness after exile and how the people can and should live so that they won't find themselves in that kind of a mess again. It tells the same stories as Samuel and Kings, but more from the emphasis that the people really need to pay attention to worshiping at the temple and trusting the Lord in all things. Of course, uh, David is often shown doing those things in both accounts. He, he was uh, establishing the kingly line that the people expected would be restored by the appearance of God's anointed king of kings, the, the Messiah that they'd all been waiting for. After all, even in dark times, God could save them. That's the next part of David's song. Verse 5, the waves of death overwhelmed me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me and death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry reached his ears. Now, the Hebrew word being translated as cry is sa'ak. It is the primal scream of the wounded as they struggle to express their pain. It's a question, who will rescue me? Can you hear me? Am I alone? Where is justice? When Cain struck down Abel's ark is what the spilled blood did. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, when their people were being oppressed and their babies were being murdered by those who held them prisoner, their suffering was expressed by their sa'ak. And in his dark times, when he felt entangled and without hope, David sa'ak and God heard. God always hears our cries and God always responds. Maybe not quite the way he responded to David because God responds to each of us in our own way and our own needs, but God always responds. David says, verse eight, then the earth quaked and trembled and the foundations of the heavens shook. They quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils, fierce flames leapt from his mouth, glowing coals blazed forth from him. 
He opened the heavens and came down dark storm clouds beneath his feet. Mounted on a mighty angelic being, he flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. I have to nitpick here just a little bit. David's song says that the Lord was mounted on a cherub. Not a mighty angelic being, a cherub. Now, uh, cherubs, those are not the cute little babies people put on Valentine's cards. Uh, scripturally speaking, cherubs are terrifying heavenly beasts whose appearance is described in terms that are both nightmarish and reassuring as they are God's creatures and they're under his control. So they should encourage us, right? But also just the description, they are frightening. Cherubs guard the Garden of Eden to prevent any entry after humans have been expelled. Cherubs perch on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, becoming a throne for the presence of God to sit above when he comes to meet with the priest who is bringing sacrificial blood to atone for the sins of all Israel. Ezekiel describes the cherubs in God's throne room as four creatures, each with four faces and four wings, always moving forward, covered with eyes that burn like coals of fire. They're not angels, nor are they ever called such, so the translator should have taken a little more care in referring to what it is that God has chosen to soar down to give aid to those who call. Um, but that's my nitpick. David continues, verse 12. He shrouded himself in darkness, veiling his approach with dense rain clouds. A great brightness shone around him, and burning coals blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered his enemies. His lightning flashed, and they were confused. Then, at the command of the Lord, at the blast of his breath, the bottom of the sea could be seen, and the foundations of the earth were laid bare. Now, David is aware that it's God's power and God's might that have delivered him. People ascribed victories to their king, but this king was all too aware of his own weaknesses and failings. David knew that it was God who was able to control things to bring about his plans. Not David, not David's plans. It was all about God. And the result, verse 17, he reached down from heaven and he rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. They attacked me at a moment when I was in distress, but the Lord supported me. And this is what it's all about. This is why David wrote this ode to his Lord and God. This is what those who compiled this book into the scripture we hold in our hands today wanted us to know. We need to trust in God. God is our rescuer. God is our savior. God is beyond the power or comprehension of even the greatest of our enemies. So, what can we learn from God's rescue of David? What is it that brought the creator of the cosmos to care for and act on behalf of an insignificant collection of cells on a tiny planet in a minor solar system on one end of a medium-sized galaxy in the middle of a still-expanding universe? Well, David says, this is verse 20, He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. And we all say, yes! God, please delight in me too. And we look to David to see why it is that he believed God chose to care for him. 
And David tells us it's because he's worth it. Verse 21, the Lord rewarded me for doing right. He restored me because of my innocence. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not turned from my God to follow evil. I have followed all of his regulations. I have never abandoned his decrees. I am blameless before God. I have kept myself from sin. The Lord rewarded me for doing right. He has seen my innocence. That's right. According to David's reckoning, he is righteous and innocent. He's perfect. He has kept God's ways. Yes, all of them. He has never abandoned the Lord or God's commands. He is blameless. He is sin-free. And because of that, he was rewarded by the Most High God. So there you have it. All you need to do to matter is to be perfect all the time, just like David. Yeah, except, um, how can that be right? Because this ode is right here at the end of two whole books full of stories about how much of a screw-up David is. He lies, he cheats, he murders people, he takes other men's wives to be his own because he thinks they're pretty, he ignores his own children's evil deeds, and refuses justice to his daughter when she's sexually assaulted. He nearly loses his kingdom as a result of his mismanagement and his self-centeredness. Thousands die because of his mistakes, his sin, his willful decisions to inflict evil on others, and yet he's singing that God saved him from his enemies because he's never done anything wrong? What's going on here? What's going on? Well, let's do this. Let's go look somewhere else. I think there's something we need to see to help us get a handle on what's happening here. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians is way back in the uh, New Testament. So you're going to flip about 80% of the way into your Bible if you don't know where to turn. By the way, let me tell you about a God-given gift in uh, almost every copy of uh, every Bible I've ever seen. It's uh, towards the very front. There is a, a page, sometimes two, called the table of contents you can use it find the book of philippians see what page number it's on go there yeah it's it's a wonderful gift that god gave to us which for some reason most people don't think they're allowed to use i, I don't really get that myself you don't have to know where everything is in the bible you can look it up it's okay now philippians chapter three paul he's that early church leader we're reading about in the book of acts we've been working through for the last few months um paul he wrote a letter to the people who were followers of the way of Jesus in Philippi, the city known as the Little Rome. They had people coming in, telling them that if they needed to, I'm sorry, um, let me rephrase that a little bit here. They had people who were coming in to the Christians there in Philippi, and they were telling them that they needed to follow all the pieces of God's covenant with Moses if they truly wanted to follow Jesus. And Paul, who had already told them that that wasn't the case, he offered them this in this letter that he wrote back to them. Um, Philippians chapter three, starting at verse five, Paul says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew. If there ever was one, I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault without fault. Paul's saying he was perfect. He is perfect. Just like David is perfect. Paul is perfect. He was righteous because he obeyed God's ways without fault, without error, flawlessly. 
Paul is saying that he is innocent. But we know, and he had just admitted right there, that he persecuted those who followed Jesus, first in Jerusalem and then the outlying areas, and finally he was even heading to a distant land to round up people and torture and kill them for just daring to say that Jesus was Lord. Thankfully, Jesus interrupted him before he got to that point. But how can he possibly say that he's without fault? And how could David? Well, in large part, it's because of what the purpose of the law was and how it was supposed to work in people's spiritual lives. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to make this as brief as possible uh, because a proper study of the purpose of the law could take us days, absolutely days or weeks, or once we start with questions, probably years. Now, under the law, if or when you transgressed, transgressed, that's a fancy $10 word for did something against the law. So if or when you transgressed, you were expected to repent. That means to turn away from the wrong thing and turn back towards the way of God. And to do so fully meant making some kind of restitution for having broken the law, like paying the fine when you get a parking ticket, right? That's a way of acknowledging that you did something wrong and you're accepting that you did that wrong and you're, you're paying the penalty. <coughs> Excuse me. And once you've paid your fine on a parking ticket, your record is it's cleared under the Mosaic law. That penalty wasn't writing a check to the parking authority. It was presenting an offering to God and doing that according to the instructions in the law. But it was the same thing. If you made your atonement, it would clear your record. And if there were sins you didn't realize you'd committed or which you had somehow forgot, there was an annual day of atonement where the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, that hidden room at the center of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant sat. That, that's the Ark with the two cherubim on its lid, uh, creating the mercy seat, which was God's throne. The priest, he would come into this space. He would bring the blood of the proper sacrifices and sprinkle it on and around the Ark in the proper way. This was a key part of the ritual, which when it was done, cleared the people of God from all sin and unrighteousness. See, they were forgiven. And at that moment they were forgiven and those sins were no longer on their record. It was a fresh start where all the people would be considered cleansed and innocent of any wrong. In that moment, at least they were perfect. When you recognize your sin and you turned back and made the atonement you needed to make, you were then faultless under the law. You were keeping the ways of the Lord because you had kept the commands of God. You were blameless, right? All of the things David said in his song would be considered true. Paul, as a practicing Pharisee, careful to keep the law in all of its particulars to the best of his ability, would have also kept up with his repentance and his sacrifices and his requirements to be considered blameless, righteous, and holy. Yes, they were screw-ups, just as we so often are. But through the sacrifices demanded by the law, the stain of guilt was washed clean. The bad ceased to exist. They were blameless and righteous because they were forgiven. The author of the uh, book of Hebrews writes about Jesus being our high priest who would enter God's temple, not this human made copy that we had here on earth, but God's temple in the heavenly realm. 
They wrote that the earthly high priest had to repeat their atonement every year because they were just a symbol of what could be possible. Um, this is uh, from uh, Hebrews. I'm sorry, I didn't write down my. I didn't write down my verse. Ah, well, we'll find this in the uh, book of Hebrews, um, at verse nine. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Hey, those of you who want to know this, you post the question down below. Which chapter was that in the book of Hebrews? And uh, let me know how to get a hold of you. I will send you a prize. That way we'll know who's listened to this far in. All right. Uh, from the book of Hebrews, the author writes, this is an illustration. Uh, let me go back just a second. Um, so they're writing about the earthly high priest having to repeat atonement every year because they're just a symbol of what could be possible. And then they go on to say in verse nine, this is an illustration pointing to the present time for the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them for that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical res regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. And, and this, they said, was all ceremonial. It was an external event, which was a way to show inward repentance. But wouldn't it be great if there was like a permanent sacrifice, which could be made so that atonement could be available to everyone all the time, not just when they slaughter another animal and go through the motions of a ceremony. Look down to verse 14. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God for by the power of the eternal spirit. Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. See, by their nature, the animals were imperfect. They're part of our imperfect creation. Um, they're insufficient to bring about a full state of perfection. And then they decay and they fade and they become meaningless even as a symbol. What we needed was a perfect sacrifice rather than an imperfect one. The sacrifice of something or someone who didn't have the taint of the world's sin in them. This is what Jesus became for us. This is what he did by becoming a perfect sacrifice and entering God's own temple as our intercessor. He has secured a permanent atonement. Now, I know I keep using that word atonement and I haven't really explained it. So let me do so now. It means to make two things that have been separated into one thing that is not. Two things that have been separated, make them into one that is not. By atonement, at one is meant, right? Atonement, at one meant. By atonement, at one is meant. Where we have separated ourselves from God by our sin and disobedience to his ways, Jesus through his sacrifice, has made it possible for our relationship with our creator to be made whole again forever. One perfect payment of the ultimate penalty to pay the price for any and every sin, every guilt, every shame, and with those things paid for, we can be declared to have no penalty hanging over us. And so we can be declared innocent, blameless, and forgiven so that our records are clean. Are you getting this? When we accept Jesus, when we trust that what God has said is true, 
and that Jesus is his son, our atoning sacrifice, the one payment required so that not a single one of us can honestly insist there is more which needs to be paid, then we can understand we are forgiven. We are innocent. We are blameless. Because the price has been paid, we are one with God again, once and for always. We are perfect. I am perfect in all of my ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. Be perfect. Now, I can't promise you'll ever be as perfect as Frank Feldman. But I can promise that in God's eyes, you will be the perfect you. So let go of the past and look forward to a future where you can live in God's kingdom and he will provide for you because he delights in you. Amen? That is a lot to think about. And I want you to take it home with you today. Wherever you are at, wherever you think that you have brought yourself to, know this. You have nothing to fear because God is with you. God is there. There is nowhere you can go that God isn't already present. Just go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week. Have a wonderful day.